Welcome into another episode of Patrick Jones Baseball. Hope everybody had a great new year. I know uh, I was doing some traveling with family. Happy to be back in back in Cincinnati, Ohio. But always great to to catch up and see some great family and and just spend some time with loved ones. And I thought there's no better way to start the new year than to to drop this episode that I'm dropping today because it's it's just a reminder how quickly life can change and and just how how much we need to appreciate the moment that we have and and be present and have gratitude. Uh, today's guest is Ryan Westmoreland. Ryan was one of uh, not one of he was the Boston Red Sox top prospect back 10 plus years ago now he uh, was a, a drafted out of high school was signed with Vanderbilt University was giving a, a two million dollar signing bonus and this was back in 2008 so this is a long time ago so it just goes to show how, how big of a prospect he was he tore it up his very first professional season with the Red Sox he was named to all these rankings and as one of the top prospects in all of baseball the, a Chicago Cubs scouting director actually said that he was the Boston Red Sox up-and-coming left-handed Mike Trout. That is that is um, exactly what he said. He said he is the Red Sox next left-handed version of Mike Trout. Um, that's pretty high praise for a prospect. And just, again, it shows how good of a player Ryan was. Unfortunately, there were some... Uh, some health issues that came about he had and I'll let him share the the exact diagnosis in this episode but his career was cut short because of um, some health issues and but he he didn't let that hold him back he's now coaching giving back impacting players at the college level at the high school level but I just a fascinating story and I, I just think that with the with the new year and everything it's just it's always good to put things in perspective and make sure that we have gratitude for the moment and I just think it's it's inspiring to to hear someone like Ryan who was legitimately on the top of the mountain and everything was just taken from him uh, and there was nothing he did wrong. He didn't. It wasn't like he was drinking. It wasn't like he was out partying or made some mistake. There was nothing he did that was wrong. It was just the you know he just was was dealt a, a bad hand. So Ryan Westmoreland, it's a fantastic story. I hope you enjoy today's episode. I greatly appreciate everybody who has left a review on iTunes and had rated the show. I read all of them, so I, I really do appreciate it. If you haven't done that yet and you're a regular listener please do that because that's how we help grow this show that's that's how the algorithm works on itunes that's how it's shown to more and more people so we can impact more players so if you haven't done that head on over to itunes leave us a five-star rating write a quick short review if you enjoy the show that makes a big difference that's going to allow us to be able to impact more and more players for years to come. So thank you for doing that. Ladies and gentlemen, here is now my episode with Ryan Westmoreland. All right, everybody. We now welcome on Ryan Westmoreland. Ryan, appreciate you coming on the podcast today. I appreciate you having me. 
So you're you're up in uh, in in the Massachusetts area right now, where it's going to be really cold. Continue to be cold. I'm in Ohio. Weather's t- terrible down here too. So we're spending some time indoors working with players um, right now. I know you work with with some players and do some private lessons and things of that nature. What's your uh, what's your routine usually like these days when it comes to to coaching and just your your day to day? Yeah, you know. Being from the Northeast and, and cold weather areas, as you know, it's it's hard to kind of, you know, tailor a hitting program when you're inside 24-7, all winter, all fall. Um, so it's really about, you know, taking everything back to the way beginning, you know, hitting off the tee, slowing things down, focusing on little parts of your swing that, you know, we can we can tinker and adjust a little bit so that when you do get to the point where you're playing outside, you're ready to go and you have those instincts kind of built in. Um, and, and that's why I say, you know, it starts in the winter. It starts with those little things to be able to prepare yourself for, um, what you're going to be doing in spring and summer. Do you have like a, a system that you adhere to when working with players or is it just? So I usually, I usually, um, I wanted to, I did have a few things that I like doing, you know, tea, soft toss, that kind of thing where I can really get a look at at the different aspects of the kid's swing. Um, but really what, what I found is it's really about asking the player, you know, asking them what they think they need to work on. And, you know, if, if it's a hitter and I say, what's your weakness, you think? And maybe he'll say, you know, the low and outside curveball and, as a coach for me, that tells me, okay, we're going to work everything T soft toss. Everything we do is going to be working on that low and outside pitch. And my, my, my thought process is, you know, if we do this so many times and really work on it all winter long, when he sees that curveball in the spring, he's going to have a lot better success with it. He's going to have an easier time adjusting and having that, you know, that mindset kind of built in starting in January is I think where, where players can really succeed. Totally. What, what What's your take on, on some of the analytics and, and technology in baseball and we'll get into, cause we're, we're right around the same age. So, you know, when we were growing up, which is weird saying, but there wasn't hit tracks, wasn't around, there wasn't yeah. blast motion or anything like that. But I mean, what, what's your take on it from a coaching standpoint? So for for me, I mean, I think those analytics things are are what they what they're called analytics. You know, I think they should be just used to to analyze people's swings and take a look at what they're doing um, and and assessing based on that. I think the issue with that is starting to become coaches are starting to tailor how they coach based on how they want the analytics to look. If that makes sense, you know. You get kids saying, coach, I want to create more launch angle. I want to have a launch angle swing, which I understand you want to, you want to drive the ball in the air. Um, but I don't think you need to change what you do completely to be able to get to that. And what I say to my players and, and college players and, and younger players too is, you know what? Exit velocity, launch angle, they're just a product of having a good swing. If you have a good swing, good mechanical swing, you're going to hit the ball hard. There's your exit velo, and you're going to drive the ball in the air, and there's your launch angle. I think that, you know, people are getting too caught up and trying to create these things instead of working on 
the mechanical aspects of the swing and and that in that process creating those those analytical terms. It's funny that, that those kids are that that one kid that you just you just talked about was talking about how he wants a launch angle swing, and I think that's that's part of kind of the disconnect, right? Where what is a launch angle swing? Because every ball that's hit has a launch angle measurement to it, that's and I think these a lot of these kids, right? They're they're listening or maybe watching something on TV or they online of someone saying launch angle swing, and so now the terminology is like all thrown off what mm-hmm. exactly are we talking about here but mm-hmm. i 100% agree with you when it comes to the exit velocity the launch angle will take care of itself if your body is is in the right position and then is able mm-hmm. to maintain those positions throughout the swing no no doubt about it and i know you mentioned mechanics and how important those are i think at times we often get i think obsessed over mechanics because you can't if I'm on Twitter, I can't look at someone's brain. I don't know what their thoughts are, but I right. can look at their mechanics. So because mm-hmm. I can visually see it, I think that's why so many people are obsessed with it. Um, what are your what's your what are your take on on helping players move better and have better mechanics without getting in their own head? Um, I think you know, I think the biggest thing that I've found is say we're you know, we're heading off the T is one day I want to work on your hand, your your upper body load. And I don't want to even, I'm not even going to look at your legs. I'm not going to look at your hips or anything. Um, I think that simplifying it and breaking it down to one aspect of a swing per whatever day or week or whatever it is, is, is key to learning because as you know, there are so many aspects of hitting. There's so many things you need to do all at once and coordinate everything that I think oftentimes that, that gets confusion, you know, that creates confusion because they're, you know, they got the player thinking about their lower leg or their, you know, their hips or how their lower body is loading and they're not paying attention to what their upper body is doing. So I take it, you know, step by step where, I'll say today we're going to focus just upper body and then the next time maybe just lower body and then, you know, hands and then hips and stuff like that. And then throughout the fall and winter, kind of put all those things together and let the player feel what it feels like to to be able to coordinate your your hand load with your leg load. And I've, I've found that keeping everything very simple and going step at a time is so much more beneficial than throwing all this language and terminology out there to these kids and, um, you know, trying to make it as easy as possible for them. Uh, I, I agree with that. I, I love the simple approach to it. And also, I really liked how you said that you do. It's just one thing, right? We're just, Today, we're just focusing on just this one thing. We're not going to worry about anything else. And I nope. think that's sometimes a sigh of relief for kids because they're not having to to feel like they need to be perfect in everything where it's like hey i just need to get this one thing down that's all we're working on today and it's more they're more likely to a get it down and b be able to repeat it longer because it's just that one thing i think it's exactly and it's it's kind of confusing to them at first because they're like you know i'm not even like loading with my lower half what what is this and then over time they kind of start to see that the reason I'm doing what I'm doing is to try to focus on that one area. And then when I bring it together, that's kind of their, their aha moment where they're like, Oh, this is, this is what you were trying to tell me, you know, all fall, all winter. And it, it, it 
seems to work that way. I, th- I feel, you know, I'm confident with that, that approach. So you, you do a lot, a lot of different things. I mean, you're, you're coaching in college, you're doing, uh, you're running a travel organization, you're giving lessons. I mean, how, how do you go about scheduling all this stuff? It, it's tough. It's certainly a lot of time management that goes into it. Um, but when, you know, when I was playing and now coaching, it's, it really comes down to the love of the game. Um, you know, I'm willing to do just like when I was playing, I was, I'm willing to do whatever I can do to help kids or, you know, do whatever I can to impact this game in one way or not, one way or another. Um, and I found that, you know, just using the love of the game has driven me to, to want to do everything that I can to help others. And, um, whether that's kids or adults or whoever it is, I just feel like I have something to give and I'm, I, I'm, I want to. Yeah, I actually, um, so I, I remember hearing about you in high school. I think you're two years older than you graduated in 2008. Do I mean, yep. Yeah. So I graduated in 2010. So I remember hearing about you in high school and, and, uh, and kind of in your story and everything. And I mean, man, you, first of all, I was reading online the scout that signed you. I believe he was with the Cubs for a while. I mean, he pretty much said you were going to be the next Mike Trout for the Red Sox. The left-handed version of Mike Trout is literally what his quote says in in the article. Um, take me through your own your own journey as as a player growing up. Maybe just starting even in just in high school. I mean, were you always better than everybody else? Like, what was your own development process like? Yeah, I I think you know to in a, in a way, yes, I was better. Um, I, you know, I always could play baseball. I was really good at it, um, but. Another thing I always preach to my kids is growing up, I played baseball, I played basketball, I played soccer, I played football. And I didn't, I didn't focus on baseball until scouts came and saw me in high school. You know, I was a very, I'm very pro multiple sports. And I think that teaches you so much more than just how to be an athlete. Um, but for me growing up, I, I played all those sports. I played well. Um, I was, I was, I was good at everything. I was good at sports. Um, I was a good student. I think that helped a lot. I mean, I I know it helped a lot. Um, but I just enjoyed it. I never took it too seriously. I never, I never worked on a baseball swing 12 months a year as a, as a 10 year old kid. I played baseball season, played, played baseball when it was baseball season, basketball when it was basketball season, soccer when it was soccer season. I never had a, uh, I never wanted to leave those things and just work on just baseball. You know, right. I never wanted to be like that, that type of person. And, you know, by the time I got to high school, it was kind of still that same way, but I started to really have more of a focus. Like, Hey, you know what? I might be able to play baseball at the next level. I might be able to. Um, certainly I didn't, I mean, I wasn't like, I'm definitely going to be division one athlete. Um, but I had a thought. I said, you know, I'm good. I've, I've been good for a while. You know, maybe this is going to work out. Um, and, and kind of sophomore, junior year when, when a lot of colleges came and saw me play, I, that's kind of when I said, you know what? This is it. This is, this is the route I need to take is be a good student and see where baseball takes me. Um, and eventually I did. I, I signed with Vanderbilt, um, as a, I guess going into my junior year, maybe sophomore year, um, as an outfielder. Um, and I was like, great, 
you know, I, I didn't even think about pro baseball. Didn't think about getting drafted. I didn't, I just didn't think it was going to happen. You know, Rhode Island kid, um, you know, public school didn't, didn't really do any showcases. I think I did one showcase ever. Um, so I wasn't like, I wasn't thinking about it. I wasn't like, you know what? Maybe I'll get drafted. I wasn't, that wasn't even at all the mock drafts. I wasn't, you know, I wasn't in any of those. Um, but saw junior, senior year, I was like playing really well. And, you know, I noticed the Red Sox were there. The Reds were there one day. And, you know, sure enough, throughout the season, you know, all 30, you know, every team was there. And I was like, whoa, like I, <laughs> I, I still didn't think I was going to get drafted. I still wasn't in those mock drafts. You know, I wasn't in any of that. So I was like, you know, maybe they're just taking a look. Maybe they're just seeing what's out there. Um and then things got serious <laughs> and it was, it was great. It was, a, it was an awesome spa- uh, place to be. Um, but I ended up after my senior year, obviously I played summer ball and got drafted or after my, sorry, after my junior year, I played summer ball, then got drafted and it was like, wow. Like I, I was not expecting this. I was I'm so grateful that not only was I, you know, signed to play at Vanderbilt, that I was getting a chance as an 18 year old to potentially, you know, be in the major leagues, which obviously had been a dream forever. Um, but it was kind of a whirlwind and I ended up getting drafted in the fifth round, uh, to the Red Sox as an outfielder and, um, kind of everything took off from there. I just, I was, I was so in shock and grateful that I was going to get this chance that, you know, it was, it was, obviously a time in my life I'll I'll never forget. Ryan, what's what's the process like leading up to draft day and on draft day? So the process was kind of it took a while for me to understand it. Um because for me it was essentially go out and play. Just do what you Which do. Is the way it should be. Right. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. And I and I think it was you know 2008. So it was at a time where it wasn't like I think there wasn't really Twitter yet. There wasn't like these, you know, everyone wanted to get videos and um, talking about yourself or whatever it is. I just went out and played baseball. I didn't know. I didn't expect to get drafted. I knew I was committed to Vanderbilt. Um, but I, I didn't step up to the plate and try to hit a home run because there were 60 scouts in the stands. I mean, I just, I just did what I did. And if I got drafted, great. If not, I was going to Vanderbilt. You know, and I was I was very happy with that. Um, you know, fortunately, I played really well. Um, and I kind of getting started getting calls from media outlets and um, some messages from scouts about, you know, what would it take for you to sign some financial stuff like that? Um, how committed to you are? Are you to Vanderbilt? Which I was very committed. Um and it was kind of, I just, I just didn't even think about that. You know, I just, I talked to the people here and there. Um, my dad, my advisor at the time, they talked to the people that needed, that were wondering about me. But for me, I just played, I just played baseball. I didn't, you know, I, I wanted to do well. Sure. I wanted to get drafted and you make it, make it to Fenway. But at the end of the day, I was playing a game and, um, I never lost sight of that. I never, I never took that for granted because. You know, very few people get the chance to 
playing Vanderbilt or playing the pros. Um, and I knew I was one of those very few and I wasn't going to you know, let that opportunity go to waste. And I was going to just take it minute by minute and just enjoy the process. And for everyone listening to uh, Ryan's being, he's being humble back then yeah. the way that the draft worked is, is the, it's not like it is now where like right now you won't get, a fit, someone who's drafted in the fifth round won't necessarily be a, a get first round money. Whereas Ryan was a first round talent and he got first round money, but he got it, but he was drafted in the fifth round. So there, there wasn't all these rules back then, but don't worry. He got first round money. He was first round <laughs> prospect. He got first round money. It was just in the fifth round because of how the draft worked back then. Um, which I mean, hey. It is what it is. I think it's crazy that the Reds were also uh, scouting you too. And that was another team that you mentioned. That would have been cool to, uh, you know, to be drafted by them. But obviously you're already, you're from that area being in Boston. So I'm sure that was really cool too. Um, what, what was it like though getting recruited for college? I know you said Vanderbilt obviously offered you and you committed there, but back then, there wasn't the online stuff, the Twitter stuff, and you're far away from Nashville, Tennessee. Yep. So how, where did they see you at? So my process was, was kind of something that I really tell my kids now, my players now is when I was playing up here, you know, all I got scouted by Northeast schools, Boston College, URI, Vermont, you know, all local schools. Um, I didn't even think about the SEC or Vanderbilt or anywhere down south. Um, but one of my, my travel team, um, played down in Georgia at East Cobb, had a big tournament down there. Um, and I had a really good game and Vanderbilt just happened to be there. And I don't think they were obviously not there for me. Um, but I stuck out and that's what I tell my players is like, you never know who's watching because in my, my case, I could have done URI. That's the only school that would have seen me, but I happened to play well in Georgia and Vanderbilt happened to be there. Um, and it kind of took off from there. And, you know, I think it was at the point where once people caught on that Vanderbilt was on to me and they kind of saw me play, um, that's kind of when my, my mailbox got absolutely, you know, flooded with schools that, you know, the, the Southwest and I was like, you know, ridiculous schools but i think that what i tell my players that one opportunity if you make the most of of something like that who knows what's going to happen so for me i could have just because i did well that day i had 300 400 you know letters um, 300 or 400 yeah, it was, it was, it was in the triple digits. Yeah, it was, it was a lot of schools. And so um, back sure then, where they, they were sending, uh, it was a lot more via mail and stuff. Mail, it's yeah. so weird saying back then, we're not that old, but I yeah, mean, back that's and, how back it was. <laughs> yeah, yeah it was, it was actual mail. Um, and I'm not sure if they were, you know, legitimately wanted, were going to offer me a scholarship or they were just kind of trying to put their, their name in there. Um, cause a lot of the letters, they weren't, you couldn't, you couldn't, tell how interested they were a lot of schools especially now i've noticed some a lot of form letters a lot of automated stuff that you can't really judge if they're really interested or they're just you know just yeah because they know you're a prospect um but you know i I did a lot of schools at all my games that summer um so those are the schools that i knew were were really interested 
So it, it really takes one school to like you, and then everyone else has FOMO, fear mm-hmm. of missing out, and then they they exactly. all jump on board too. That's essentially what happened. Exactly, exactly. From from I mean, there might have been something behind the scenes that I don't know about, but I do know that the Vanderbilt they were at that game. I played well, and then coincidentally. <laughs> a week later, I was getting reached out to schools all over the world. Yeah, that's it's it's crazy how that works out. Um, well, and then, what, well I, kind of, sorry, sorry, ahead, to there. I was just I was just thinking, not so much college, but pro. There was a game my eighteen U summer that Vanderbilt and the Red Sox were both at, mm-hmm. and I went like six for six with three home runs Ooh. and robbed and robbed the home run Ooh. and. It was just funny how it worked out because they were both there and they were obviously competing against each other in a way. Right. I'm sure uh, Vanderbilt was not happy that you went six for six that day. No, they, they were, they were, well, they would have been excited, but they, I mean, what was going on? It was like, a, yeah, they, they knew that by you playing well and the Red Sox being there that you just, yeah, like, yeah. The price just they went probably, up. They probably exchanged some looks like, uh oh, like, what? Right. But, that, but, the, but it's funny because. Uh, you know, I, I help a lot of kids in the recruiting process now, and it's funny because, in a sense, I hear that same same stuff from coaches now. We're all uh, a mid major coach, or maybe even a D two coach, will be on a kid, and and he finds out that a D one or a, a power five school is going to be there watching him, and he's like, "Man, I, I hope today this kid doesn't do well because I don't. Right. I, if he does well, I know I'm going to lose him. Right. So it's kind of the same thing that you experience just at a higher level with mm-hmm. with the Red Sox." Yeah. So when you when you got drafted, you got drafted. Did you play that that summer at all for the Red Sox? I so I signed late. Um, when I got down there, I had some like shoulder soreness just from the spring and summer before. Um, so they kind of shut me down. Um, I ended up having labrum, like a small labrum surgery, because I just I was a pitcher in high school, so I think just the wear and tear of yeah. pitching so much and right. and playing the field and stuff was kind of a um, result of that. Um, so I didn't play that season, um, but that off season I I got back, so I was playing in um, spring training. Obviously, I, I showed up early to rehab and work out and and stuff like that, and then. Um, I was still kind of rehabbing my shoulder. It wasn't a hundred percent. So I did extended spring training and then I went to, um, short season single A in Lowell. And that was what year was that? That would have been 2009. 2009. Okay. The end of 2009. Yep. Okay. And then that, that following year, you had a great year, right? So yeah, that year, it was that year in Lowell. Um, where I, I still, they didn't want me to throw, which I was like, okay. I mean, if you think, Obviously, these guys are the best there is. So if they're telling me not to throw, I'm not gonna, you know, overdo anything. And also, they're they're I work for them, <laughs> you know. Yeah. Um, so yeah, but I hit really well. I hit almost 300 um, against all college kids. I was 19, um, feeling really good about myself. And it was after that season that all of the the rankings came out. You know, the Sox prospects. Uh, Baseball America, all that stuff. So that was kind of wild to be a 19 year old on, you know, one of the cut top few pages of Baseball America. That that was kind of surreal. Well, you had a great year that year. I mean, just looking at some of your numbers. I mean, you hit for some power that year in, in low A. And I, when I was with the Orioles, I coached in low A. So I was looking at your numbers. 
and thinking just thinking back to to the, some of the players that that I coached and and similar ages and I mean really good like really good numbers for a 19 year old playing low A so I'm sure that puts you on on a map as you mentioned with the rankings and everything like that so heading into the off season normal off season I assume you're yeah. just working out getting your shoulder right and everything and then what happened going forward was the plan to have you be in in high A um, I, uh, or higher. Um, or they told me, that. yeah, they told me that, you know, they, they saw me at Sunway and obviously I was still really young. So I wasn't expecting to say, you know, go to the big leagues right that year. Um, uh, but they did say, you know, we're gonna, we're gonna try to get you going, not fast track me, but kind of put me in a position to see these advanced, really advanced double A, triple A guys, um, so that I am ready to, take on the major leagues at some point. Um, so yeah, that, that was, that was incredible between here and that and, you know, being the number one Red Sox, you know, prospect being the baseball America, one of their, you know, top prospects in the country. Um, that was kind of cool. I, I felt strong. I was ready to go. I was confident. Um, and that's kind of when everything medically started. Um, it was, Late February, I was down there just kind of getting ready for spring training. Um, we were doing like a stretch and I just felt numb, like really numb. And I was like, this is weird. Um, my legs were numb. My hands were numb. So I was like, what's going on? Maybe it's just falling asleep or something weird, like, like weird like that. So I went to the training room and they said kind of what I thought. They said maybe it's like a pinch nerve or something. Maybe you're just. Maybe you just need to like just rest and you'll be fine. We'll stretch it out. We'll just go home and rest. Like I don't think anything is really that wrong. Um, and then it kind of got worse over that night into the next day. And that's kind of when the red flag went off of them where they said, okay, now it's not a pinch nerve. This is, this might be head, neck, spine. Something might be going on in that, in that region. Um, so they sent me off for like an MRI. Um, that's kind of when we saw everything that was going on and went from there. We went up to a few different neuro, uh, neurosurgeons in Boston, New York, and then Arizona. And then I had my first surgery was out in Arizona in March of 2010. And what was the surgery? So it was for a uh, cavernous malformation. So it was on my brainstem, which is the worst possible spot if you could Imagine the brain, how it kind of comes to a, like a, you know, like cord down to your spinal cord. That's where my malformation was, which is very similar to like a blood clot. Um, it's like a tang. It's technically, I think it's like a tangle of, of blood vessels, um, that kind of form like this raspberry looking thing. Um, so they had to, for the surgery, they had to go in behind my ear and like take it out and clean out the lining. Um, so it was a very obviously complicated, um, emergency type surgery. Um, so obviously I was left with, with some disabilities. Um, and, but still, um, never gave up like from, I still wanted to play at Fenway. I still wanted to be in the major leagues. I felt like I could. Um, so I just after that first surgery, I just said, you know what? Why not? Like, why not me? No one's ever done anything like this before. I think I have what it takes and I was going to you know, give it a shot. 
And so, okay, so what ended up happening after that? You tried to make a comeback. I assume that I'm sure that took several months, right, to get you. Yeah, months and months of grueling, like rehab and and working out. And eventually, I forget the dates, but I played in the the Dominican. Um, I rehabbed all the way back to play in pro games in the Dominican, which was an incredible accomplishment. I wasn't 100%, but the fact that I was there was like, you know, how oh, yeah. many months ago I couldn't even see and I was struggling to eat. Now I'm, you know, <laughs> facing 95 miles an hour and all that stuff. So that was incredible. Um, so I got a few odd baths down there. I think like five or six. Um, and then when I came home, um, I came up to, to Boston just to get my routine MRI on my brain, which after you have brain surgery, you have to go into routine, like routine MRIs and doctor's appointments, which which is fine. I mean, obviously, when you're dealing with the brain, you want to make sure that nothing's yeah. going on. You're not taking any chances. Yeah, yeah, yeah not. You don't want to roll the dice there. Yeah. So um, I was up there, got my MRI, and while I was waiting for the results, I went back home, was playing playing golf with my friends. Felt great. I mean, I didn't feel any numbness. I didn't feel sick. I felt great. I was strong. I was healthy. I just played pro baseball after having brain surgery, which was incredible. Um, and then I get a call from my um, primary care, the Red Sox doctor. Um, and, you know, once I saw his name on the phone, coincidentally, right around the time that I was probably going to get the results of my MRI, I was like, oh, some, I, I hope this isn't what I think it might be. Um, and all he said, I said, hello, Dr. Ronan. Um, Larry Ronan was the doctor. And he all, all he said was, you need to come to Arizona. You need to get on the phone with Dr. Spetzler, who did my surgery the first time. And that was it. And I was like, hit my stomach. Something's going on. I'm going to have to go through this entire thing all over, which was nightmare and i think one of the worst parts about it was kind of like i said in that first with the first surgery i had the numbness you know i knew something was going on i felt weak in my legs i had this numbness in my hands but the second time i felt as healthy as ever you know i was strong i was playing golf i was walking around was no issue whatsoever um so i think that kind of caught me by surprise when you got, I got that call um, so, so sure enough, I get on the phone with, with the doctors, the surgeons out in Arizona. Um, and so the cavernous malformation is that like raspberry thing I was, I was describing earlier, but it also has like an invisible, like lining around where it is, um, that obviously you can't see. Um, and mine, they took out my entire, the malformation the first time, but there was some of that invisible, you know, lining that they couldn't, they couldn't take out because they couldn't see it. Um, and, and, you know, unfortunate enough, it grew about, it grew back exact same spot, same size, same everything. And it was like, there's nothing, there's no one at fault. I mean, it was just the worst kind of luck ever is just this thing randomly grew back. And it was like, I got to start this entire rehab process all over again. And it was just, it was tough. It was tough because at that point I was still only 
21, 22. So you 21 years old going through two brain surgeries. That's it's it's not fun. No. Jeez, man. That's I mean, I can't imagine what was going through your mind at that time after already going through it one time and then realizing you had to do it all over again and also feeling healthy, like you said, too. I mean, it sounds like you were feeling bad. Right. Right. Yeah, it was it was such a weird experience. I remember in the first surgery being on the hospital bed right after surgery, couldn't open my eyes yet, was was doing breathing exercises. And I remember saying, like, three weeks ago, I ran a 6-2, 60. I was hitting home runs easy. <laughs> and now I, I can't even, like, get out of bed. I can't even, you know, balance. And it was just, it was just a weird, weird experience for a 20-year-old to say, you know, now – to this day, it takes me 10 minutes just to tie my shoes. And wow. back in the day, you know, I was spinning on 98-mile-an-hour fastballs like it was easy. And, you know, now the simplest things are, are tough. Mm, man. Well, so after the second surgery, did, I mean, did you feel like you could have made another? Or was it by that point going to be too too difficult because of, of having to go through all that again? Yeah, I think it was kind of. A little bit of both. I mean, I obviously my my instinct, my drive was, you know what, I'm going to do this again. Like, screw it. If anyone can do this again, it's going to be me. Um, But shortly after, you know, once I realized that, you know, I had the disabilities I had were a little bit more, um, I kind of I talked with with Ben Charrington and, and the Red Sox front office and they kind of said, you know what, we'll. We'll do this as long as you want. As long as you want to rehab and work out, like we're more than behind you. Um, but you know, I had to look in the mirror and I had to say, you know what? I have better things out there or not better things. Um, but I have more to offer. I get to, I get to turn the page and, um, do something else. And now I'm coaching. I'm a senior in college. I'm, I'm doing all these things that, you know, I'm, I'm grateful for. The Red Sox, obviously, more than grateful. And, you know, I'm grateful that they gave me that opportunity to say, if you want to rehab this thing and, and see if you can make it, go for it. But if not, we totally understand it will support you no matter what. Um, and, like, to this day, I still talk to a lot of the Red Sox people. Not not because, you know, I used to play for them, because they, you know, they genuinely care about how I am as a person. Um, so... Like, good example, my my daughter is almost two now, nine, I think 20 months. Um, and, and when she was born, I think I had 10, 15 just Red Sox people reach wow. out. Just congratulate. I never told them I had a baby. I never told them, you know, Libby was pregnant. I never, none of that. They just genuinely wanted to know. They look, you know, look me up on the internet or social media and see how I was doing and just, Heard about that news and all reached out and it was it was incredible because you know I was a minor league player I didn't make it I got hurt um, it happens um, so they could have easily just kind of forgot about me you know that that stinks that's unfortunate but we got a business to run we got you know we're we're a major league franchise we were dealing with hundreds of kids um, could have easily just kind of set up you know that I miss you I wish it worked out but it didn't. You know, take care. 
Um, but they didn't. They treated me and treat me to this day like family. So that's something, you know, I always, always cherish. That's awesome. Yeah, that's so cool to hear that they're the Red Sox are like that and, and just first class and, and just, like you said, care, right? I mean, I think that's yeah. it's easy to, to probably, uh, you know, not do that. Maybe if, you know, you hear about stories about just people ignoring or whatever of things mm-hmm. happening in the past and moving on and people feeling yeah. forgotten. But obviously that wasn't the case for you, which is, is great. Yeah. So kudos to the Red Sox for sure. Yeah. Uh, and it's it's tough, you know, being an 18-year-old, like getting thrown into that it's a whole new world. You know, you're not ready for it. You don't no, have your, your friends around. You don't have your parents around. It's it's a it's a whole new thing. And you know, for them to treat me like family was from day one was was really special. And um, obviously, I'll never forget that. Well, I tell you what, man. I, it's you know, obviously it's a bummer what 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 happened to you, but it it seems like you know right from the get go you had the right attitude of. Of you know what, hey, like my career didn't end up the way I wanted it to, but there's still more to life, and I I know I have more to give and yep. more people to impact, and that's exactly what you're doing and have been doing for, for all the all the years since then. So I commend you on that. I think it's so easy to to, to have played the the woo is me card, which I mean, quite frankly, I guess nobody could have really blamed you, but mm-hmm. which I did too, which I did. You know, yeah. I won when they did. You know, I did. I was. 20 years old, I was like, why me? I should be in right on the brink of making major leagues and being there every day, center field there. So I did have that, that problem, that time in my life where I was like, why me? And all my buddies were getting called up. You know, it was like Middlebrook, Will Middlebrooks, you know, Christian Vasquez, Daniel Nava, all these guys are, are getting called up to the show. And obviously I was happy for them because they're my buddies and they still are to this day. Uh, but it was it was it was tough because it was like that should be me out there with them. You know, it shouldn't be just Will Middlebrooks getting called up. It should be Will and Ryan, you know, that kind of thing. So it was tough. But, you know, it was after I kind of turned the page from the why why me attitude. I think that spun into, you know what? I have a lot of knowledge. I have a lot of experience. I get a story to tell. And let's take what I do have and use it to impact others whether it's players or, or family members that are going through something or or whatever it is there's a i have a lot of experience and knowledge in those areas and i just want to help i just want to help whoever whoever can hear wants to hear it that's incredible so how long have you been coaching uh players i mean was it a year after you were got done playing two years like what was the time oh, yeah i would say it was probably between a year and two years, um, I think, you know, right after I retired, um, I didn't really want to even watch baseball, you know, I, which was, which was strange because I lived and breathed baseball, you know, my whole life. Um, but there was a period that I was like, I can't watch this when, when all my buddies, like I said, all my buddies are getting called up Rizzo and Middlebrooks and all those guys. I was like, I can't deal with this. Um, but eventually, you know, a couple months later, I kind of just said, kind of what I said before to you just now, just, you've know, got two roads. I can just continue to stop, not watch and not care about baseball or use what I've gone through to, to make an impact. And so it was like two years. I started coaching with my dad, like a travel ball, 14, 14, you travel ball, nothing too intense, but I, 
very quickly realized like this is what I was, I was meant to be around this game and mm. to help people. You know, I would have loved to be around this game and hit home runs and be in Fenway Park, but you know, there's there's other things out there for me, and I I quickly realized that that coaching was was one of those things. Very cool. Where where do you want to be at in five to ten years? You know, I I you know certainly coaching. Um, I love coaching in college. I love it. Um, and you're at UMass Dartmouth. UMass Dartmouth. I'm the hitting, I'm one of the hitting coaches. Um, I think I think a good goal was to be a head coach a head college coach one day. Um, you know, everyone always asks me, I want to be a head coach, but people ask like, what division do you want to coach at? And the same thing I tell my players is it doesn't matter what division. I love division three, division two, division one. It's all incredible baseball, incredible kids. You're going to be dealing with incredible talent that, I don't, I don't care. You know, I, I would love to be a big time division one head coach, but I'm just as happy being a, a New England small time division three head coach. Um, I think that, um, you know, just being around the game for me, I, I, whether I'm in front of a ton of fans or no fans, I just, I just want to be around the game and around the, the players and, and use my knowledge to, to help them succeed, whether it's, eventually getting drafted or just having a great four years and playing college baseball. Cause not a lot of people get that chance. And if you want to four years in college, play baseball. Not many people get to do that. You get a degree, you have fun doing it. You love baseball, whether you play after that or not. Um, that's, I'm not, not worried about that. You know, if you want to get drafted, I can help you try to get there. But if you're, if you want to just, Get your degree, play your four years. I I love that too, and I respect that. Oh, incredible! Tell you what, just mic drop after that segment right <laughs> there. But I, uh, Ryan, appreciate you coming on, man. Um, this has been this has been great. I mean, it's incredible content. It's so good for people to hear your story. Um, so inspiring that you know you continue just to get back up after everything that had happened, and you know, dusted the 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 dirt off your shoulder and just kept on moving, man. And now we're impacting more people now and players and through the game of baseball and just through your story of, of resilience. It's awesome. So appreciate you coming on. Appreciate for what you're, you're doing and look forward to, to following you, man. in the years to come. I appreciate you having me on. I, I know you have a lot of followers and I'm, you know, I'm really happy that I was able to to get on your show, talk with you and um, Bob Downey, um, I think connected us, which, yep. Um, if you, uh, he might have told you, but he hits the best fungo in Rhode Island. He, he never to told me that. He's teased, oh, he's yeah, a but... humble guy, but he he could swing a fungo bat. Really? Okay, sure. okay. So, um, but no, I'm I'm very grateful that you wanted to have me on, and um, to all the listeners, I always say, you know, just never give up. You never know, and um, just you know, follow your passion, and um, until somebody tells you you can't, and just you know, live life one day at a time. Love it.